You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to do a bit of a status update on the state of infectious disease around the world. This will be a two-part episode where we discuss COVID, monkeypox, and polio. And this week, we are going to focus on COVID-19. So Andrea, are you ready to dig in and give a status update on COVID? You know it. And if you didn't <laughs> tune in to last week's episode, make sure you check that out. We talked about naturopathy, which is a very controversial topic. And we did a deep dive. We debunked some myths and we hopefully provided a nice overview of what it is and what it isn't. All right. So COVID-19, let's talk about case counts to start. So as of now, there are about 54,000 daily cases being reported. And per Dr. Michael Osterholm, who's an infectious disease specialist at the University of Minnesota, there were about 2 million cases reported over the past month or so. And we know that this is substantial underreporting. Andrea, I think you have some information on Yeah, on I think based on summer projections and wastewater surveillance and, and other sorts of parameters that we can use to get a gauge, it's estimated that this is undercounting possibly as much as tenfold. So for every 10,000 cases that are reported, there's actually 100,000 cases. So if we're saying there's 54,000 daily cases, we're actually close to you know half a million or more. And that's really because so many people are utilizing at-home testing, which is a great tool, but unfortunately, those data are not reported to county, local, or state public health entities. So while the daily case count is kind of an unreliable estimate due to the at-home testing, what's more reliable are daily hospitalizations and daily deaths. So we're looking at over 4,000 daily hospitalizations in the U.S. alone, and between four to 500 deaths per day in the U.S. I think right now, as of September 21st, which is when we're recording this, the average is around 355 deaths per day. Again, that's in the U.S., but globally, we're seeing almost 2,000 deaths per day. So something I know we're going to get to a bit later in this episode is President Biden's comment on that the pandemic is over. So I know you and I have a lot to say about that, but you know, sort of just jumping ahead to that, I think that we're both... Un- I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, a bit uncomfortable with a daily death count that high. And it seems like, no, you know, we're, we're certainly not in the place where we were in March of 2020, but I- I'm personally not comfortable saying that the pandemic is over. So I, I know that we're, we're going to talk about that more, but just wanted to plant that seed. But Andrea, I think we should definitely talk about the, the hottest uh, news yep. around COVID-19, which is the bivalent booster. So do you want to yes. sort of set the stage? So bivalent means 
to valence. Basically, what that means is that it is a vaccine that targets two different antigens. And antigens, again, are components of pathogens that are recognized by your immune system, and our B cells recognize it and then produce antibodies against it. So the original formulation of the COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna are mRNA vaccines. So what those vaccines include is they include the mRNA sequence that is the template for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And that spike protein is the protein that sticks out of the viral capsid that binds to our cells and allows the virus to infect us. So the original formulations, which were are the formulations that are still used for the primary vaccination and were previously used for booster doses was a monovalent, meaning it was just a single a single sequence. The bivalent booster now includes an additional sequence. And so it includes the mRNA sequence for the parental strain of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, but it also includes the sequence for the spike protein of the BA4 and 5 Omicron subvariants. And in these bivalent boosters, it's a one-to-one ratio. So 50% parental mRNA spike protein sequence and 50% Omicron subvariant mRNA sequence. This is really important because currently the predominant strains of SARS-CoV-2 that are causing COVID-19 around the U.S. and elsewhere in the world are different subvariants of the Omicron variant. So typically, or In principle, having a spike protein that is more closely matched structurally to the predominant strains will allow our immune system to have a better recognition, produce more antibodies that bind better to those viruses, and ultimately neutralize them. So neutralizing antibodies are a common readout for these types of efficacy-based data in the lab because neutralizing antibodies, what they do is they bind directly to the virus to that spike protein, and they inhibit the ability of the virus to actually attach to our cells and ultimately infect us. So neutralizing antibodies are that kind of first line of defense. If a virus is able to evade neutralizing antibodies, they may still infect us or infect our cells, but we have other components of the immune system that can limit the severity of illness, uh, and that's where our T cells, our memory T cells, and other sorts of players get involved. But neutralizing antibody levels are very easy and straightforward to measure uh, after vaccination for these types of studies. So the bivalent boosters for both Pfizer and Moderna are authorized for individuals ages 12 and older. So it's 12 and older for Pfizer and 18 and older for Moderna. And this is as of September 21st when we're recording this. It is actually expected. So this was authorized as of September 2nd. It is expected that bivalent boosters will be authorized for the younger pediatric groups. And and in fact, they, they may be authorized by the time this loads. But ultimately, this This is replacing the previously authorized booster. So anyone in that age group that books an appointment to get a booster moving forward, um, 12 and over, they're going to get the bivalent booster. So I know you and I were both very excited about this bivalent booster. We've both received it. Just to sort of translate for the non-immunologists in the audience, (laughs) the thinking is that this vaccine or this booster, excuse me, is going to better protect against these Omicron subvariants, which are why? widely circulating. Um, That's definitely the most prevalent strains that we're seeing right now um, around the world. So I just want to go back to when
when the the FDA was reviewing the data for this, you know, Andrea, there was some controversy. People were saying, oh, they weren't reviewing human data. They only looked at the impact in rats. And I think it's important that we address this. This is not at all uncommon, right? This is what's done every year for the flu vaccine when it's updated based on the circulating strains. The vaccine technology did not change in any way. So in the interest of time, considering the fact that, you know, there's this highly infectious virus that's circulating because there's absolutely no reason to think that there'd be any impact on safety. And we do have an update on that in just a second. The FDA went ahead and authorized this. You made a great point, right? So this is just, this is not a new recipe, right? It's the same ingredient list. It is just a slightly tweaked formulation. And just like we do with the annual flu vaccine, we conduct experiments in in vitro, in petri dishes, in cell culture, and also in animal models, in mice, and, and sometimes other species. And so, again, it's not, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not bypassing steps that normally, you know, are carried out. This is exactly what we do anytime a vaccine formulation is updated. Um, it's kind of like switching bleached flour for unbleached flour. Uh, Ooh, I like that analogy. <laughs> and I want to bake some cookies. So the committee that reviewed the data overwhelmingly supported it. Um, one person did vote no on the basis of, basically he said that there, you know, there, there's no concern about safety, but his thinking was that the original formulation does still protect us against severe illness and death, and that there's this public misconception that vaccines are supposed to prevent against illness illness altogether. And that does not need to be our goal if we're protecting people from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. However, we now do have uh, some human data, which we're going to talk about now. There was a peer-reviewed study that was published earlier this week, but again, we're recording uh, the third week in September. Uh, You'll be listening to this in October. But it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it sought to compare the updated booster, so the new bivalent booster, to the previously authorized booster. And there were some really exciting findings. The primary objectives of this study were to to assess the safety of the booster, the reactogenicity, which Andrea, you can clarify, but to my understanding, it's the, the side effects that we experience after getting vaccinated and the immunogenicity of the booster. So how, you know, how much of an immune response are we seeing 28 days after the booster dose was given? I kind of like this data even a little bit more than what the average person might because in this study, so the original bivalent formulation was going to be parental SARS-CoV-2 and Omicron BA1, so the original Omicron subvariant. And that was kind of the original formulation earlier in the spring. That's kind of when all the clinical trials started getting underway because, yeah, we didn't skip them. We just authorized the booster before we had the final cohort of data. But actually, the FDA requested that the U.S. formulation be further updated to include BA4 and BA5 because there's a tiny little change in the spike protein, and that actually improves the binding if we switch that. And so, you know, these data are really, really positive, and it's showing that even with parental Omicron, we're really effective at neutralizing BA4 and BA5, and therefore with a BA4, BA5-specific 
bivalent, I would expect that the binding to be even more robust. So let, let's talk about, I, I'm going to do the, um, the, the simplified uh, version of the results of this study. And then I, I think it would be great, you know, of course, if, if you can weigh in as an immunologist. But so this study found that compared to the previous booster, the new booster demonstrated significantly higher neutralizing antibodies. And that's what Andrea has been talking about. In all participants, regardless of prior infection with COVID-19, the really good news is that this was true for the Omicron subvariants as well as other SARS-CoV-2 variants. The really, really good news is that the neutralizing antibodies, as, as Andrew just explained, they block viral entry to prevent infection. So, you know, we don't have the real world effectiveness data quite yet, but in my mind, and please clarify, this indicates that the new bivalent booster, it could impact or reduce the likelihood of infection and will will almost certainly reduce the severity and duration of illness if you do get sick. Andrew, anything to, to add there? No, I think you did a great summary. Um, you know, all the data look very promising. It's very consistent with the animal data and the in vitro data. And I think it's important. So so we did get a lot of questions from people. Oh, well, why are they still including the original sequence, right? The parental SARS-CoV-2 sequence. And, and I think the point you just made is that this particular booster led to higher neutralizing antibody levels against all of the other previously identified variants. That's super important because, again, viruses change based on random mutation. So right now, the Omicron subvariants are the ones that are predominant, but there's nothing to say that a new mutation might crop up that might actually change the virus to be more similar to alpha or to beta or to gamma or to delta. And so the fact that this booster includes sequences that are similar to alpha and also similar to Omicron, and you're seeing higher antibody levels, that's good news for potential future variants as well. Right. So this does not mean, you know, if you, if you get the bivalent booster that you're definitely not going to get infected, but all signs point to, you know, it's certainly going to reduce the, the likelihood. So the, the limitations of the study, you know, this was part of an ongoing Moderna trial. Sorry, I don't think I specified. This was specifically assessing the Moderna bivalent booster. So this, these were data coming from their, you know, the, the ongoing clinical trial. We want to see more data to better understand understand the duration of protection. So we're still waiting for, for those data. We also would like to see some real world effectiveness data once we see more vaccine uptake, once more people are getting this booster to really understand how it's performing in the real world. Yeah. I've seen a bunch of people saying, oh, well, you know, this protection only lasted for a month. That's not what the data are saying. The follow-up period at the point these data were published was a month of follow-up. It doesn't mean that it was only protecting for a month. I'm so happy that you made that distinction. Just a couple of really quick points because we get a lot of the same questions. Who should receive the bivalent booster? So right now it is authorized for individuals over the age of 12 years. We do expect that it will be authorized for children under 12 years, but we're not quite there yet. These data that we just presented are specific to Moderna, um, but we expect similar data to come out of Pfizer. Who should get the booster? So again, everyone over the age of 12 years, you can wait about uh, three months if you were previously infected with COVID-19, and you should wait two months after receiving your COVID-19 vaccine or other booster. I think this really segues nicely into the fact that, you know, we, we want to improve 
booster uptake. So as of right now, there's only less than 35% of the U.S. population over five that have gotten a booster dose of any kind, either bivalent or the original formulation. Of those who are fully vaccinated, only 48.9% have received a booster of any kind. And if you actually pair that down by age group and we look at who's doing the best with regard to staying up to date with vaccination. So again, the primary vaccine series is the two-dose vaccine separated by three weeks if it's Pfizer, four weeks if it's Moderna. That is kind of the minimum requirements. But up to date also includes recommended boosters for your group. So that could be based on age, based on uh, immunocompetency or being immunocompromised and so on. So if we actually look at breaking it down by age. The lowest overall vaccine uptake is when you include everybody over five years old. So about 71.8% of the U.S. population over five is fully vaccinated. Compare that to the U.S. population over 65 years of age. That's 92.2%, you know, up to date on vaccination. So way to go. The gap is, (laughs) (laughs) but the gap is really with kids, kids under 18 in particular, there are less than 9 million kids, five to 11 who are fully vaccinated. There are just over 15.3 million kids, 12 to 17 who are fully vaccinated. So we really want to improve overall vaccine coverage, but also improving booster uptake. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We need to talk now to parents of children under the age of five. You know, as you said, that's where we're seeing the lowest vaccine uptake. Only about 2.8% of the approximately 19 million children who are under the age of five have received at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. And when you compare that to the next age group up, five to 11%, um, at a similar point in vaccine rollout, we saw about 18.5% vaccine uptake. So there's something going on with the parents of children under five. And I I have some ideas and I want us to address those, but really the uptake is super, super low. Uh, If you look, it varies by location, Um, certain places where we're seeing the high a share of children under the age of five vaccinated, Washington, D.C. at 14.4%, followed by Vermont, 10.3%, and Massachusetts. Go Massachusetts. That's where I'm living, 7.2%. But oh my goodness, if you look at the bottom 10 states, they together, they have vaccinated 1% or um, fewer of children under five. Mississippi is the lowest uh, with 0.4% of children who are eligible under the age of five receiving at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. And, you know, Jess, this is obviously very disheartening and frustrating, obviously, because from our perspective, we understand the benefits and, and things like that. We know that there are silos of information and misinformation that spreads, and, and we do know that there is some political influence on that. But the other thing that this makes me think of is the fact that 
not getting your kids vaccinated for COVID-19, there, there are links to not getting your kids vaccinated for other preventable illnesses. Part of our routine vaccinations that all kids should be getting. Couldn't agree more. We have content on this. Oh my gosh, there's so much we want to say, but we're trying to keep these episodes shorter. <laughs> but, you know, you can't overwhelm the immune system, right, Andrea? I know we, we did a post on that. Yep. You know, you don't need to worry about vaccinating too much. You know, we keep hearing, oh, does this mean we're going to need a, you know, we're going to need to, to get ourselves and our kids uh, vaccinated or boosted every month at this rate? And right. the answer is, of course, no. You know, we're, we're hoping to move to a place where maybe we have a, a once annual booster, sort of similar to what we see with the flu vaccine. Maybe it would be a combo COVID and flu vaccine. Right. But there shouldn't be this concern about overwhelming the immune system because when kids step outside, go to a playground, they are exposed to so many pathogens. And, and, and you know, those things, I don't want to say tax the immune system, I don't know what the, what the right word is, but there's so much more of an, an impact than any vaccination or or all vaccines combined. Yeah, I mean, and we we debunked a lot of these myths in our four-part vaccine myth series back in 2020. So if you guys do want to hear kind of the granularity, um, please tune into those episodes. But the things that, that we're hearing a lot are that kids are not affected by COVID. That's simply not true. I mean, thankfully, we're not seeing uh, a ton of severe illness, hospitalization, or death, but we have seen over 1,000 children in the U.S. alone die from this virus. And if we have a safe preventive tool that we could be giving them to, heaven forbid, prevent those very rare outcomes, why why not do mm-hmm. it? We're also hearing, you know, my, my kid had COVID. It wasn't severe. It was, it was mild. You know, why why would I get them vaccinated? You know, as you said, Andrea, first of all, the, the virus is mutating. We know that um, vaccines are provide more long-lasting and more robust protection than natural infection alone. And actually combined, if you've been previously uh, infected and then get vaccinated, you're kind of like supercharged, <laughs> right? And we're hoping that soon this bivalent booster will be available to children and maybe we can see, you know, fewer infections altogether because I personally am more concerned actually about long COVID than I am in and of itself. You know, I'm relatively young and, and in good health. Looking at the statistics, it's unlikely that I would suffer from really poor outcomes, hospitalization, or death. But long COVID is a real issue. So can we talk about long COVID briefly? And then I, I know we want to address uh, President Biden's comments. Yeah, I think um, it's a great point to make. And I think it's another reason why parents who have not considered getting their kids vaccinated should, in fact, do so. You know, so long COVID is... The official term is post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. And basically what that means is persistent symptoms after acute illness. And as of July 2021, it is now classified as a disability under the, the American with Disabilities Act. Long COVID can be... It, it runs the gamut with regard to symptoms. Some people have persistent respiratory issues. They're not able to get back their lung function after illness. They, Some people have brain fog. Some people have other psychological or neurological issues. Some people have persistent fatigue and lethargy and headaches. And, you know, there's evidence that the virus, while maybe not in the body anymore, has created tissue damage that has persisted. And of course, the 
easiest way to prevent COVID is to limit the spread of illness in the first place. And, you know, as, as you were just saying, long COVID, it could impact pretty much any organ system. By the CDC's estimate from June of this year, one in five U.S. adults with a known prior case of COVID has symptoms or or has either has or had symptoms of long COVID. And, you know, having COVID raises a person's risk of developing chronic conditions, including heart disease, asthma, diabetes. And, you know, one thing I want to comment on, we're seeing all these claims like, oh, look, there are all these increased um, unexpected, unexplained deaths. And, and people are attributing that or blaming it on the vaccines. And I'm questioning, why aren't people considering that it's the virus itself with its known impact on on every organ system. You know, we are seeing people with these vascular issues, an increase in, in strokes, even among young people who only had mild COVID illness when they were sick with COVID. And I will say, you know, there's been a huge outcry by scientists and folks in medicine who are saying that the government is ignoring the greatest mass disabling event in human history. We don't really understand long COVID. Um, we don't understand why it manifests. And and one thing that we get asked a lot is, do vaccines protect against long COVID? And Andrea, I know you're you're going to talk a little bit about that, but I want to be clear that the data that we have is based on, you know, prior to this new bivalent booster. So do you want to just summarize very briefly whether the, the yeah. data indicate that yeah. vaccines protect? And, you know, we'll probably do a follow-up post on this as well, but it's hard to study, you know, something like this because, again, Symptoms are really broad and non and nonspecific and and things like that. And you know, as just mentioned, some people may develop you know post acute sequelae without having really pronounced illness to begin with. But there is some recent data that does suggest that vaccines, particularly if you're up to date, so it includes a booster dose, does reduce the risk of long COVID moderately. So previous data suggests that vaccination lowers the risk by about 15%, um, and that included 13 million people in a cohort. There's been another recent study that Jess and I have to dig into the meat a little bit more about that actually suggests that it does reduce the risk of long COVID more than that. Now, it's also important to remember that these data don't include the bivalent booster, which actually, because it has it elicits higher levels of neutralizing antibodies, may reduce the likelihood of infection even more um, than previous vaccine formulations. So it is possible that the effects or the prevention effects through vaccination at reducing the risk of long COVID may actually be magnified once we start to roll out this bivalent booster to more populations. Okay, so I think uh, in the last couple of minutes here, we should just maybe provide some some of our own commentary, our, our thoughts on what President Biden said. So I've sort of given my, my two cents, which is that, you know, I, I don't agree, nor do I disagree with the statement, because I think we're kind of in this subacute pandemic. But my concern Concern is more from a messaging point of view. I think that people are hearing this, you know, COVID isn't a problem anymore. No, I don't think that's what President Biden meant. I think he was saying, you know, no, we're not in this hyperacute state where, where we were in March of 2020. But it doesn't mean that we could just throw everything out the window and totally let down our guard. I'm just so nervous that this is going to, to make people or give people this false sense of security and, and make them think that, no, you know, I don't need to mask everything. 
ever, not even when I'm in crowded indoor public spaces, or no, I don't need to get that booster. You know, COVID is not a problem. So that that's really my concern. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Jess, I totally agree with you. Um, I think we're at a point in the pandemic where it is relatively predictable, but of course we are still seeing 400 deaths per day, which is certainly something to be concerned about. Obviously, we're seeing a much lower case fatality rate now because the people who are predominantly dying of COVID are unvaccinated and we are improving vaccine uptake, but we can improve that. But I think, you know, either extreme is not healthy, right? The constant or the fear mongering disproportionately skews the the real world risks right now in a place where, you know, the population is, you know, 75% vaccinated. Right. Um, But at the same time, we can't just ignore everything and forget that there is a rampant infectious disease that is still spreading around the U.S. and around the world. So, Jess, I think you and I both agree that it's this realistic pragmatism, right? Risk mitigation, you know, multi-layered approaches, consider your own personal risk and health history when you're making decisions. But again, we've gotten to a point where there are a certain group of people in the population that don't believe that it's a problem. Some have never believed that it's a problem. And so as much as I would love to say that it should be a community effort, I I think a lot of it is is ultimately going to be left to the individual. And that's why vaccination is really important, because that's something that you can do on an individual level that will protect you and protect your loved ones and protect, you know, your risk of, of infection and illness and, and hospitalization and death. Totally agree. So on one hand, you know, I do appreciate President Biden's, you know, optimism and positivity because we have come a long way. And thank you, science. Thank you for these amazing vaccines. Thank you, preventive measures and masking and and other things that really helped get us to where we are now and and some promising, you know, antivirals and and all that good stuff. So, but, you know, I also, I feel for folks who are immunocompromised um, and and who are at high risk for these um, poor outcomes. So I think we, you know, there's, I hate to say celebration when we're still seeing so many deaths per day, you know, but I think we could breathe a bit easier. We're certainly not where we were a couple of years ago, uh, but we should proceed with caution and not just throw everything out the window. So I think we're on the same page here. So yeah. Well, that's our COVID update. I hope that that was informative for folks. That was a lot. And this was hard for us to condense in 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to thank you all for tuning in. If you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We do try to post extended content there as regularly as we can. Uh, We also do respond to questions and comments from subscribers. So you will have a direct line to Jess and myself. You will have access to our private Facebook group as well and our monthly live Q&As. So you can find Substack at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. You also get to weigh in on future podcast episode topics. Next episode in part two of this series, we're going to tackle the current status on two other infectious diseases diseases getting attention around the world, monkeypox and polio. And of course, we will continue to write updates on COVID-19 and many other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah.